Welcome to the Powerhouse Politics Podcast. I'm ABC News political director Rick Klein. And I'm ABC News correspondent Brad Milkey talking to you, Rick Klein, down a somewhat scratchy but wonderful Skype line. How you doing? All right. We're doing great. And just the record shall reflect that that music played at the top. Even though Jonathan Carl was not with us uh, today, he is on assignment. He's got some really exciting things, including a couple of Senate debates coming up. Uh, and Brad, we said this all the time, but what a week. I mean, now we're on the other side of the second presidential debate. We're also on the other side of the video that rocked the political world. Uh, And now we are seeing what has been kind of a low-level civil war inside the Republican Party uh, become a conflagration. And it's now everywhere. And Republicans are are firing on themselves. And it seems like there's no good day to tape this podcast, right, Rick? Because, I mean, if, if, you ta- if you tape it on, on a Thursday, the very next day, tapes leak showing Donald Trump uh, bragging about groping women, uh, about kissing them without the consent. If we had taped it on, on a Monday, that would come right after uh, this huge debate between these candidates that a lot of people saw as this low point in the history of American debating. And then just, you know, in the, within the last, you know, 48 hours or so, we see this uh, tap dance among Republicans just trying to figure out what to make of all of it. Well, it's extraordinary. And we're going to talk in a little bit to Mary Bruce, our congressional correspondent who is out in Wisconsin trying to track down the Speaker of the House. We're also going to talk with Bill Weld, who is the libertarian candidate for vice president. Uh, We're seeing increased interest, uh, Brad, in the third party candidates as we get down to the stretch here, even though they're excluded from the debates, they could have a major, major impact. And Brad, we've said it so many times about how how odd and strange this campaign uh, can be. But when you think about what the last week has brought uh, between the tape of Donald Trump just saying vile and vulgar things about uh, women 11 years ago, the second presidential debate uh, co-hosted by our own Martha Raddatz, a terrific debate, which included the, the, the fight that everyone never thought they'd see talking about Bill Clinton's extramarital affairs and supposed abuse of of women, Uh, and then this meltdown inside the Republican Party, it's hard to see how it gets stranger. But, you know, we've seen from Donald Trump uh, a a strategy of of going to the loan. He says he's unshackled, Brad, but I I don't know who's more damaged by that potentially, Democrats or Republicans. And and I don't think Donald Trump particularly cares at this point who becomes more damaged (laughs) so long as it's not Donald Trump. And just think about, you know, the timing of this and what we're seeing from these campaigns, because there's a lot of head scratching right now, whether it could have been a coincidence that just two days before this uh, gargantuan debate, these tapes of Donald Trump come out. And and then there's even more head scratching as to whether it could have been a coincidence that WikiLeaks starts dumping these emails from John Podesta. Uh, And, you know, we've got, what, 27, 26 days to go before the election. Uh, And who knows what else these campaigns sort of might have in their back pocket, because we see how quickly the polls move in these moments. I mean, NBC uh, had a poll out just in the days after the tape came out. They showed an 11-point gap between the candidates, and we still don't know what the debate might have brought. That's right. And, and you know, an 11-point loss is a blowout yeah, of historic zone. proportions by modern standards. That's disaster zone. And it starts to put not just the Senate in play, uh, but maybe the House of Representatives as well, which brings us back to Paul Ryan, who is in such an interesting spot in this. There have been a whole range of Republicans who have pulled their endorsements entirely, uh, including Senator John McCain, who took a lot of heat for that endorsement throughout. Paul Ryan hasn't done that, but he tried to go as far as he could without doing that and saying and telling his members he basically doesn't care about the presidential anymore. It's all about the House. 
does he get to put that kind of distance between himself and Trump? It is such a dance. Yeah, no, I see. I think people see him very much as trying to have it both ways, and he is right. He's trying to say that he supports the party and that he supports the Republican nominee, but at the same time, all he cares about is the Republican majority. And, and we've seen this sort of selling point before, right? Back in 1996, uh, when it looked like Bob Dole was about to lose uh, President Clinton's reelection campaign, uh, you saw the House say, "We're trying to provide a check, a check, a balance." On the White House, vote for a Republican House in order to ensure that this new president, Clint, that, that reelected President Clinton doesn't get everything he wants. And now that seems to be Paul Ryan's strategy as well, which begs the question, is he simply riding off the White House at this point? Yeah, it's, it sure seems like it. And he'll he'll say, no, you know, he's, he's still going to he still wants to vote for him, wants to support him because that's the chance for the agenda. But you get a sense among Republicans that they're giving up on the presidential. And then another twist, Brad, that we, we should mention, which is WikiLeaks, which yeah. appears to have hacked the emails of John Podesta, the chairman of the Clinton campaign, uh, and is now doling them out in, in almost digestible batches day by day. We presume all the way through the election, we have we, we know that federal authorities believe that Russian state-sponsored actors are behind this in an in, in attempt to influence the election. There have been no enormous bombshells yet, but the whole specter of Russian interference with this and the distractions and the embarrassing revelations of these unfiltered emails coming out drip, drip, drip over the next 20-something days – uh, this is wild stuff. And, and the and the Russia connection is big for the Hillary Clinton campaign, and it's provided them this sort of cover where they're able to say, we won't authenticate any of this. In fact, we don't even want to look at these. Jen Palmeria, Donna Brazil at one point was saying, I haven't gone to the website to check them out because I don't want to get hacked. And therefore, they're able to say, well, we can't tell you if, if any of these are real. They won't say John Podesta very rarely will come out and say, uh, yeah, I actually wrote that. Instead, we're sort of left to piece together what the significance of them and, and then sort of ask later whether John Podesta actually wrote these emails. Uh, we, we have had some sort of mini bombshells, some embarrassing moments. Uh, you had a, a Clinton advisor calling Chelsea Clinton a brat. You had Donna Brazile basically saying she got her hands on a question that was going to be asked to Hillary Clinton at a CNN town hall debate. And then on the other end of the aisle, of course, you have Donald Trump telling this to his supporters, uh, whether they're full blown scandals or not, it at least sort of fuels the perception that Hillary Clinton gets special treatment by nearly everyone in the political establishment. And like you said, that's going to keep dripping uh, for the next 20 something days. And Brad, there is one debate left in Las Vegas, Nevada, prize fight central. Uh, I, I feel like Ken Bone, our new celebrity from the last debate, maybe should referee the match, that famous, famous undecided voter in America with his red sweater. Uh, we don't think he'll be on hand. But this last chance for Donald Trump to change the narrative, I, I just can't even imagine what the stunt will be after what he did uh, a couple of days ago in St. Louis and, and how big the stakes are. Well, and remember, a, a month ago or however long it was ago when Donald Trump retooled his campaign for the umpteenth time, he brought in two very different voices. He brought in Kellyanne Conway, this sort of mild-mannered Republican pollster. And he brought in Steve Bannon, this spitfire, bomb thrower from Breitbart, whatever you want to call him. Well, Kellyanne Conway was leading sort of the Trump strategy for a while. That, that appears to be out the window, right? I mean, Steve Bannon was in the room uh, grinning ear to ear when, when Donald Trump held this sort of surprise press conference with those four women that say the Clintons have ruined their lives. That looked very much like a Steve Bannon move. Now you have a new ad out uh, that, that is pairing war footage with, with videos of Hillary Clinton stumbling. Uh, this looks like the Breitbartization of the Donald Trump campaign. And so if that's where Donald Trump is going, he 
says he's unshackled now to fight however he wants, th- then this third debate is really, really even more unpredictable than the first two as far as what Donald Trump will do, even though perhaps his finest moment came in that second debate when he was nice for once, telling everyone that he thought Hillary Clinton was this hard worker. I don't know if we're going to see that side of Donald Trump very much anymore. And you're right, Brad. And that Breitbartization is a recipe to narrow your appeal, not broaden it. But in the meantime, we are going to check in with Mary Bruce, who is out in Wisconsin uh, trying to track down the Speaker of the House. Mary, why is Paul Ryan avoiding avoiding you so much? What's going on here? Why avoid Mary Bruce? Paul Ryan is uh, desperately trying to keep a bit of a low profile these days, as you can imagine. You know, he has made very clear earlier this week that he will not defend or campaign for his own party's nominee and that other Republicans in Congress should feel free to do the same, to stop supporting Trump if they think that that that, that could improve their own chances. You know, this has now sparked this massive internal civil war within the, the Republican Party. But here's the thing. Even as Ryan is saying, you know, don't he's not going to support his own party's nominee, he's still endorsing Donald Trump. I mean, I know this is radio, but this is where you insert that kind of head scratch universally (laughs) as everyone tries to figure out this fine line that Paul Ryan is trying to walk. And that's the problem that a lot of Republicans are having right now. So instead of being focused on the top of the ticket, Paul Ryan is, is out here in his district. He's meeting with constituents. He is squarely focused in these final weeks on helping House Republicans win. And these days, uh, also squarely focused on avoiding <laughs> our cameras and speaking with the media, because he is simply uh, intent on, on trying to, to lay low. Now, here's the thing. Uh, in return, Trump you know, has called Ryan feckless, a weak leader. He's warning that Ryan may not actually be speaker if Trump wins. But here's the thing. Trump is also laying a, a lot of groundwork here, right? He appears to be blaming Ryan and Republicans who oppose him, uh, saying that if he loses the election, you know, it, it may be their fault, not his own. Hey, Mary, how much of this is just uh, convenience for Republicans bailing? How much of this is Paul Ryan perhaps looking at 2020? And how much of this is just personal animosity between these two men who seem just have who seem to have very, very different styles? I'd say yes, 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 all of the above. Um, I think Paul Ryan is trying to give a lot of cover, of course, to his own majority. That's what he is focused on. And remember, Paul Ryan has, has been uh, pretty timid. I think that that's even, you know, probably too light a word here in, in his endorsement of Donald Trump. But there was something about that 2005 video, that audio of Donald Trump speaking so lewdly about his you know, treatment of women that, that, that pushed Ryan over the edge. That was too much for him. And so he wants to say distance himself from Donald Trump, gives him cover to his, uh, you know, members in Congress, but he also doesn't want to distance himself completely. And that's the problem that all Republicans are facing. Yes, you know, it does not seem that they are uh, exactly chummy, I would say. Paul Ryan is certainly closer with, with Mike Pence, Trump's running mate, than he is with the top of the ticket. And after the kind of mudslinging and name-calling that we've seen, especially on Twitter <laughs> and in his interviews from Donald Trump, I, I don't think they're going to be uh, exactly patching this one up anytime soon. Well, and, and he's now – he faces it from all sides, right? Because he has members who say uh, – they're probably in Trump-supporting districts. you, you got to be with the Republican nominee. And, and then even Trump himself is saying, I don't want to be in a foxhole with this guy. And uh, maybe he won't be the speaker after, <laughs> after January it's, when he's elected it's, president. It's amazing. And also, you know, now you have to look at the, the pretzel-like contorting that some Republicans are doing. It's just astounding. I mean – their nominee says something that many Republicans have come out, obviously distanced themselves from strongly language that many said was inexcusable. But then, you know, Trump comes out, he does, you know, OK in the debate. And as soon as a lot of these Republicans get even a hint, a whiff 
of blowback from some in their own party, from some of their constituents. Now you see Republicans falling back in line (laughs) with Donald Trump. It's this whiplash going in by many within the Republican Party as this implosion seems to be happening all around them. So then what happens if you're a Congress, if you're a Congress member whose whose constituency is is 10 percent Trump supporters? And how does that change if your constituency is is 30 percent Trump supporters? I mean, where is the line at this point between how how comfortable you can feel uh, distancing yourself from Donald Trump? I mean, it's it's not small numbers of voters that we're talking about here. They have enough uh, enough clout if they're really angry about uh, you backing away from Donald Trump to, to swing your fate. And that's the calculus that, that, that a lot of members are having to, to deal with right now. You know, where is that line? How much support or how much do their own, you know, voters and constituencies support Donald Trump? Where do they want to fall? You know, and obviously this is not just about this election, but this is about going forward. You know, the, you're talking about the careers of a lot of these politicians and also the future of the Republican Party at stake. These are not, you know, small questions. <laughs> and Mary, I want to get to that because we're going to be a month from now past Election Day. And uh, if, if Trump wins, that's one future for Paul Ryan and 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 what we would presume would still be a House and a, and a Senate majority if he wins. If he loses... These people are going to have to pick up the pieces. Do you get a sense in talking to people on the Hill that they've begun to grapple with what the task is going to look like on the other side of this election, what kind of damage they'll be looking at with the Republican brand, with the Republican Party after this just extraordinary campaign and this extraordinary split, even uh, even a, you know, a dumpster fire inside the Republican Party? Yeah. How do you pick up the pieces of this? And no one really knows. You know, Rick, you and I were talking yesterday about, you know, the the former House Speaker John Boehner. Everyone thought that he was overseeing, you know, a a caucus with a lot of big splits and divides. What does this look like now? I mean, in some ways, (laughs) what Paul Ryan is dealing with is is so much more difficult and so much more challenging than that. And, And, you know, on a more broad term, say Donald Trump doesn't win, what do you do with all of this anger and frustration that has been, you know, really remarkably tapped into? I mean, he has tapped into something very real uh, in the American electorate. Where does that all go? And when all those people turn to their their representatives in Washington, uh, what does that look like? Those are all things that Paul Ryan has to figure out. And we keep talking about what will happen if Donald Trump loses and the pieces they'll have to pick up. But if Donald Trump becomes president and is trying to push out Paul Ryan, is trying to reimagine the Republican Party, I mean, a Trump White House could, in itself will shake up the Republican Party beyond anything we've known, right? Those are all good questions, and there's a very large motorcade pulling in this parking lot, so I'm going to run up and try and get some answers for us from the House. Go, get out of here, get Mary. Him. Get him. Get him. Mary Bruce, go get him. On the scene in Wisconsin. Thanks, Mary. Appreciate it. Okay, let's take a quick break here. We'll be right back with Libertarian Party Vice Presidential nominee Bill Well. <laughs> Brad here. If you like the podcast and want to check out some others from ABC News, check out abcnewspodcast.com. We've got a whole bunch of shows for you to listen to, so take a look and subscribe to the ones you like. All right, let's get back to the show. And we're pleased to be joined on Powerhouse Politics by Bill Well, the former governor of Massachusetts and now the vice presidential candidate on the Libertarian Party presidential ticket. And Governor, you told the Boston Globe recently that your main objective between now and the elections to make sure Donald Trump does not become president. Given the events of the last week or so, are you confident that he cannot win? Uh, How does this change your message in the ensuing four weeks? Well, you know, uh, exposing uh, fault lines in the Trump candidacy is not my only objective. We have a campaign to 
wage uh, for the libertarian ticket as well. Um, but I do consider it uh, a patriotic duty to keep my eye on Mr. Trump and particularly his uh, pronouncements in the foreign policy area, which I think are really cut loose from uh, any moorings uh, in reality. So I will, I will be uh, doing that. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that I'm uh, confident that he's out of it. Um, you know, given, given the pollsters uh, pr- predicting that the Brexit vote in uh, England was going to go down by a mile, and that the uh, FARC deal that President Santos negotiated in Colombia was going to be approved by a mile, you know, like 65%. And, of course, both those votes went the other way. So you can't discount the possibility that there are a lot of people out there that don't want to tell the pollsters that they're voting for Donald J. Trump. So you, you think it's possible that there is a, a kind of secret Trump vote out there? The Trump campaign believes so. You think that's possible that there's, even even given where we've seen the separation the last couple of days, that there's a that there's a, a secret vote out there that could come in for him stronger no, than I'm any of so his sorry to say, but I, I'm so sorry to say, but I do think it's possible because both those other votes uh, went in the politically incorrect, unexpected uh, direction, and that would be the direction that a Trump vote would be. Hey, Governor, uh, we saw Mike Pence stick with Donald Trump after that audio surface of him bragging about groping women. Is that just part of the running mate gig? I mean, would you be sticking with Gary Johnson if he had said something like that? Well, I don't think Gary would say something like that. That's why Gary doesn't have the negatives that the other people, uh, uh, the other two uh, major party uh, candidates uh, have. Um, yeah, I think in, in the case of Governor Pence, he's he's all that's uh, sticking between the Republican Party and a, a sort of potentially free fall situation. I think he's helping Trump a lot just by being there. So I, I wouldn't look for him to do an open break. Although, you know, what animates uh, Governor Pence more than anything is uh, the social issues that really propel him. He and I are on diametrically opposed sides of those issues, but that's his number one issue. So he, of all people, would be troubled by the uh, tape involving women. And, and while we're talking about your running mate, Governor Johnson has had a few flubs of his own on foreign policy. First, uh, there was the Aleppo comment, and then another with you sort of sitting there just trying to help him help him out, naming a foreign leader that he admires. So what goes through your mind as a running mate when those things are happening in real time? Take, take us into the mind of the running mate for a second. Well, I'll tell you what I was thinking on the foreign leader one was, wait a minute, who do I admire? And I came up with Merkel, and, and then I thought about it some more, and the only other person I really came up with was uh, Aung San Suu Kyi in, uh, in Myanmar, former Burma, who really has been you know holding that country together for 10 years. Uh, beyond that, you know, I'm fascinated by Xi Jinping in China, but there's not a long list there. So if you didn't think of Merkel, you know, I can understand why Gary was uh, wanting more time. Uh, on the uh, Aleppo thing, I think there was just a misunderstanding. I don't think he knew that uh, Mike Barnacle was even talking about geography, let, let alone about Syria. He said, uh, I thought it was an acronym for something. That's why he said, what is Aleppo instead of where is Aleppo? In fact, uh, Governor Johnson had been pretty insightful about what he'd been saying the previous weeks uh, regarding Syria. And uh, he was the person who explained that we, you know, backed one rebel group. They got defeated. All the weapons we gave them wound up in the hands of ISIS. Then we have three more rebel groups that are all anti-Assad, but uh, they kind of hate each other. And you've got Nusra, who are waiting to succeed ISIS. And you've got Jabhat, who's waiting to succeed Nusra as the leader of the anti-U.S 
coalition, and you've got the Kurds who are great, but they're sideways with Turkey. So it's a, you know, Go- Governor Johnson predicted uh, day before the U.S. and Russia negotiated the ceasefire that that was going to be the only way out of the woods, do something with Russia to get a ceasefire for openers. Now, of course, it fell apart because all the rebel groups can't get along with each other, and there were a couple of uh, the unfortunate bombing uh, of the 60 uh, Syrian soldiers and then the outrageous bombings of the uh, hospital and aid aid convoys. Um, So that's just a tremendous mess. But my point is that Governor Johnson was knowledgeable about the situation in Syria on the ground, so it really was flunking a pop quiz. So, Governor, well, the question that I've gotten over and over again, and this may be because of my background in covering Massachusetts politics more than anything else, but I've been asked so many times, why not weld Johnson instead of Johnson weld? I know it's too late to go back and and seek the presidential ticket instead, but even Mitt Romney has said, I'd consider voting for Bill Weld. Gary Johnson gives me pause. What's your response to them? And is is this something you even raised with with Governor Johnson about you being on the top of the ticket instead of him? Rick, I hear that a lot from people in Massachusetts and New York who've known me for 20 years and wouldn't know Gary from a cord of wood. Uh, when we travel west of the Mississippi, it's quite it's quite the opposite. Gary is mobbed in airports, and I can walk in perfect stillness uh, and not be recognized uh, or uh, uh, you know thought well of by anybody. So, uh, you know, Gary called me in uh, in May, shortly before the convention, and said, "Would you like to give this a fling?" And I and I had known Gary well back when we served as governors together, and I said, "Absolutely, that's great." I mean, I felt like. Rosie Ruiz, the woman who snuck into the end of the Boston Marathon and pretended she'd run the race. Do you remember her? She had actually just gotten out of the subway. So I get to do a national campaign in in five months, and I'm fascinated by, the first of all, the issues in the campaign. You know, I'm very serious about being uh, fiscally conservative, as I was in Massachusetts, as Gary was in New Mexico. And I'm equally serious about being socially welcoming and inclusive. I never bought the sort of movement conservative uh, position of the Republican Party on, on social issues. So I enjoy the interplay of issues very much. And the interplay of personalities this year makes uh, the race uh, even more fascinating. And, and I do hope to be able to play a role in the, uh, the, the closing four weeks in just illuminating the issues. And it's not just the problems with the Trump candidacy. It's that Here's the Libertarian Party, which has a very good platform. We're, we're pro-trade. We're fiscally responsible. We're socially welcoming. And, you know, the, the Republican Party is not socially welcoming. And I don't think the Democratic Party is particularly fiscally responsible these days. It was partly a result of the Sanders primary. But uh, the Democrats have promised that so many things are going to be free. And that's just a canard, you know. One of my favorite expressions when I was in office was there's no such thing as government money. There's only taxpayers' money. And I honestly think that a lot of people in the Democratic Party, when they see those government printing presses going round and round and green stuff coming out the other end, they think that money is free. And they shouldn't be in charge of the government if that's what they think. Hey, Governor, so I'm clear. Is that the focus of the campaign at this point? Is it about raising issues? Or is there a state you can point to right now that you believe you guys can actually win? Oh, sure. I think Gary can win states, and uh, even without a break, he can win states in the Intermountain West, uh, maybe northern New England. But with a break, uh, we, we, if, if we become catnip for the national press in the closing weeks because they buy the argument that we have the best ticket, 
you know, two two-term Republican governors who had to, by definition, work across the aisle to get things done in their states and who did get things done. That's why we were both reelected by wide margins. I think we have winning arguments. It's just a question of having them heard, and our problem is not a qualitative one. It's a quantitative one. Gary's name rec- recognition is 35% instead of 99%. And if we get around the country, as we are doing, and uh, talk to media, stage rallies, uh, continue to raise money, you know, just uh, and mainly pour everything into social media, we're reaching 50 million people. That's a big figure. It's not as big as 84 million people. But we get that name recognition, uh, recognition up there. We might be part of the generic conversation going into the last weeks of the campaign. And if so, and uh, Gary's name recognition gets up to 60%, not even 100%, He'll be in a ballot position of 25 percent at that uh, at that time. So in in that case, Governor, then, I mean, one route to the White House we always talk about is, of course, to make sure that neither Donald Trump nor Hillary Clinton get to 270 electoral votes. Uh, Then, of course, the vote would go to the House of Representatives. I mean, have you discussed that possibility then with any current lawmakers? Are are there people in Congress who are talking about that as as a legitimate possibility? I don't know how legitimate they think it is. It's a possibility. It's plan B for us. Plan A is to get in the national conversation and then get to 25% in October. If we're at 25% in October, we're going to be extremely dangerous to the two establishment parties because at that point, we'll be the ticket at 25 who three months ago was at 5, and they'll be the two tickets uh, at you know 35 who two months ago were at 40 uh, or 45. And I think most pros in the political game at the national level would say if you get your choice of momentum, money, and organization in the last two weeks of a campaign, you want momentum. Governor, before we let you go, four weeks from today will be the day after the election. Put yourself in in the mindset of the day after and, and try to complete the sentence. I will feel victorious if. I will feel victorious if. What do you need to see? on election day to feel like you delivered the message and and you did what you came here to do? I will feel victorious if voters think for themselves rather than take the word of people out of Washington that you have to vote for an R or a D because that's the only way we defeat my opponent. Gary and I don't hate anybody. The two major parties in Washington hate each other. They exist mainly for the purpose of impeding and killing each other. And that's the same for the two presidential campaigns. They hate each other. Their number one priority is to sink the opposing candidate. And I don't think that's good for the country. And the the person who I think most has contributed to that is Mr. Trump with his strategy of trying to stir up uh, envy and resentment uh, and even rage and to set group uh, against group. That's the opposite of the way a presidential campaign should be waged. The presidential campaign should be uplifting and make everyone feel good about uh, being Americans and emphasize our shared uh, goals. And uh, boy, that's not that's not Mr. Trump's campaign. What if the, the country thinks for itself and elects Donald Trump? Well, that would be a real poser. <laughs> <laughs> And, Governor, does that mean you're done with R&Ds in general? Are you going to be a libertarian going forward past this election? Well, I'm feeling pretty comfortable in the Libertarian Party. I mean, as I say, I I never bought the social policies of the Republicans. Someone asked me in Orlando, Florida, where our uh, convention was held for the Libertarians, 
how do you feel now? You got a big L next to your name, and uh, you know I raised my hands and said, "Free, free at last." So, in terms <laughs> of uh, actually what the parties contend for, uh, I think the libertarians that I've seen a lot of uh, this uh, this election cycle are the most idealistic uh, of all the factions or tickets or whatever uh, you want to call it. You know, our objective is to maximize the happiness and the prosperity and the liberty of people in the United States. And that runs right down to the grassroots among the libertarians. There's a reason those people are libertarians. They want they want those things. They don't want a great big behemoth government living their lives for them and telling them how to live their lives. And uh, at the other uh, side, they're very uh, emphatic about property rights and maximizing prosperity as well and, and being socially welcoming and inclusive. That's part of freedom and liberty. It's a nice combination. So I've, I've had a good time in this race, and I hope people understand those values. Bill Weld, Libertarian candidate for Vice President of the United States. Thanks so much for being here on Powerhouse Politics. Thanks so much. So, Brad, traditionally, third-party candidates become less important as Election Day draws near. You hear Bill Weld talk about it and their growing appeal, and he's right in the polls. We could be talking in a more real way about the third-party candidates, particularly the Libertarian ticket, all the way up. Through November 8th. Well, and beyond November 8th, right? I mean, uh, the point that, that Wells and others have made is that young people on either side of the aisle are just increasingly frustrated with this two-party system. So you heard he say, I'm comfortable as a libertarian. You can imagine more people saying they're comfortable. Combine that with just the disarray we're seeing in the Republican Party. Combine that uh, with, with millennials being uh, who used to be solidly Democrat saying, eh, about Hillary Clinton. Uh, young black voters saying that they're not nearly as sort of solidly Democrat as their parents. And you've got a recipe for, for a real blow-up of the two-party system. And, and so much at stake because at the same time that you're blowing up the two-party system, you might actually be – influencing this election, yeah. which, as we hear from Bill Weld, he, he really doesn't want to do it, puts him in a tough spot. Yeah, and he really seems to he really seems to not want Donald Trump to win this presidency, Rick. I mean, it's it's one of those things. It's one of those things where he's he's saying that he can see the path to victory, uh, that he can see the influence of the Libertarian Party growing. But at the end of the day, he says, please just oh, please don't let it be Donald Trump. All right, that is going to do it for this week's edition of Powerhouse Politics. Please take a moment and rate and review the show on iTunes. You can tweet at us using the hashtag PowerhousePolitics. You can find us at Apple Podcasts, at Stitcher Radio, at Google Play Music, on TuneIn. You can find all ABC News podcasts by going to abcnewspodcast.com. We'll be back next week, and we will talk to you then. For Brad Milkey, I'm ABC's Rick Klein. Thanks for listening.